Thank you. Well, as I indicated, we, we've uh, covered so much of the history of God's people in overview, studying from Hebrews 11, that great uh, history of faith and the faithfulness of our God to all generations. But uh, we come now to a part of that history that was not covered and one that with which we are much less familiar to the book of Ezra. Apparently, I don't even know where it is. I'm turning in the wrong part of the Bible. Uh, Ezra chapter 1. Uh, toward the end of the historical books, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra. Um, by the way, uh, Ezra, almost certainly the author of Second Kings as well, and uh, you'll notice that the uh, very last verse of Second Chronicles 36 is uh, also taken into Ezra chapter 1. So there's this continuous history, and the, the chronicler, probably Ezra, he, he has uh, uh, laid out the history again of God's people in such a way that the exiles who return might know how they should therefore live. So that chronicling history, why do we have that all written over again? Do we have it in Kings and Chronicles? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, Samuel and Kings. Yeah. Uh, Ezra is laying, laying it out again as a means to preach to the present generation. I'm going to be doing the same thing with Ezra as a means of preaching this history to the present generation as these things were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages has come. I'm not going to be able to draw many of those connections for you tonight. In fact, only a few. But uh, we will be doing that as this book for the rebuilding of God's glory in the earth at at a time of near total destruction uh, has some important things to say to our generation. Well, Ezra chapter 1. I was only going to do the first four when I made the bulletin, and I thought, nah, it's a very short chapter. I'm just going to do the whole, whole thing. So here to go. Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the, uh, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, And build the house of the Lord God of Israel, he is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all those whose spirits God had moved arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and also with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and had put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, brought them out by the hand of Mithradath by the, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. 
There is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 39 gold, excuse me, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shesh Bazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. All right, well, let's uh, pray together. Uh, our Father in heaven, uh, the very uh, heart of the king is in your hand, and like the rivers of water, you turn it wherever you please. You are able to, you are able to uh, fulfill your will among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one is able to say to you, what have you done? In these days you have appointed for us, as we have sung tonight, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to so fulfill your word and fulfill your will for your people, even among those pagan nations, that your glory might spread throughout all the earth. And so it is, we pray that you would encourage us, even in a discouraging time, that we should be a people of courage and that we should uh, have upon our hearts the great cause of our God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On September 11th, 2001, uh, many of us here, at least some of us that have some gray in the hair, watched on television as the terrorists brought down the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. It was just one of those surreal moments like the assassination of President Kennedy that people just do not forget. If you remember uh, the feeling watching those towers collapse and think the world has changed, all those lives lost, what a great tragedy. C consider that this is really absolutely nothing compared to the trauma that the Jews experienced as they watched their beloved city, Jerusalem, on Zion's hill fall God's temple raised and burned to the ground, its surviving citizens carried with hooks in their mouths captive to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar in the year 586 B.C. It, it was an astonishing thing that happened. God had warned them for generations that this would be the result if the people were still turning from their God to serve the Baals and to do all the wickedness of the Canaanites who were before them. He sent them prophet after prophet to turn them from their evil ways. In fact, God had warned the people all the way back in the days of Moses. What would happen if they continued to live as Canaanites? Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young. And so it was fulfilled. And as the book opens and the story begins, this is the context that God's people were not living in God's land. Oh no, they were living far away in the land of Babylon. God's land, uh, the Levant, Canaan, had been repopulated with foreigners. God's city, Jerusalem, the place where he had set his name, had been destroyed. And uh, people didn't uh, sleep there at night. No walls, no, no food, no shelter, 
thieves or animals would get you. There was nothing left. It was an awful time for the people of God. But then the Lord had not left his people without hope. Uh, the word of Jeremiah, the prophet uh, mentioned here in verse 1, Jeremiah had said it would only be 70 years in that exile. In fact, the book begins not quite 50 years later from the fall of Jerusalem that Cyrus the Persian, who had just conquered the mighty empire of Babylon, he says to the Jews, God told me to send you back and to build him a house in Jerusalem, and I'm going to pay for the thing out of my treasury, and here are the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple before he destroyed it, and go on up, and let those who don't go support those who do. The Lord brought Zion's exiles back, and we were as men who dreamed, says the song. It was was such a reversal. Again, a, a time now for courage, for advance. The Lord was calling them to restore his cause, his glory in the earth. God's people at this time were very weary and weak and easily intimidated. And frankly, as soon as they get there, they're going to lose their initial excitement. And spoiler alert, the progress is going to be much slower than they hoped for. And then the pressures from the world are going to intimidate them. And criticism And the wrong expectations among God's own people will be the worst of all and greatly hinder them. You know, we we, we probably think of God's calling us to do a great work, that things are going to go easily for us. Perish the thought, says the book of Ezra. This is a great work. This is by the will of the Lord. But, you know, when we undertake a good work, we need to recognize that... uh, many things are still going to be against us. The Lord is going to have a great victory, but we should still expect plenty of opposition. Opposition from outside and always most discouraging, devastating opposition from within. I mean, this is what brings most missionaries home from the field. It's not the difficulties with the people that are there. Most, if they get discouraged and quit, it's because of those on their own team. This is why the average length of a man in the ministry, I've understood, is less than four years. Criticism, pessimism, wrong expectations, all of these things will build up. But you know what? They're still going to triumph. Uh, This is a, a call to courage. This is not written merely for some people to remember some glory days and a great thing that God did so many years ago. Uh, no, no, it's written, it's written for future generations to tell them, you know, when, when you want to do a great thing for God, when you want to advance his glory in the earth, this is your game plan. This is what you're going to face, and this is where your victory is going to lie. God can use us too. You know, criticism, pessimism, wrong expectations discourage us today. Pressures from the world discourage us. Slow progress discourages us. We can lose our initial excitement. God knows how hard it is. He has a word for us. He wants to reassure us that in spite of all of this, he has a promise that he is here with us and that not any bit of our labor is in vain in the Lord. Do you believe that? Sometimes it is hard to see how anything is happening. Sometimes we falter and fall and There's going to be several years where nothing goes on. The project seems to come to a total halt. But God is at work. Well, 
We read in the book of Chronicles, almost certainly, as I mentioned, written by Ezra also, uh, we read about some sons of Issachar who had some understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. The godly in every generation also, also feel this is what we need. We need people that can understand these confusing and tumultuous times and, and know what God's people are to do. The cause of God is so often, it seems, in decline, if not actually in ruin. The people of God seem to be chasing their tails, not knowing which way to go, not making progress, a lack of prudent and godly and wise leadership. Would that we had some people with the understanding of the times to know what we ought to do. Well, the book of Ezra tells us about two such people, greatly gifted by God, who knew what to do and how to get it done. Zerubbabel and Ezra. These men were not writing from ivory towers about how God's glory may be restored in the world, as some think tanks put out papers today about such things. Oh, no. These were men who were risking their necks every day. These are men who did it, risking their lives through great struggles and saw an astonishing success for the cause of God in the world. Not overnight, but as Ezra wrote this book for future generations, he wants to do so to inspire them, to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God, as Carey said, even when all seems hopeless, if not backward. And by the way, uh, most people think that uh, this Shesh Bazar of uh, Judah, this uh, prince mentioned in verse 8, as well as verse 11, is just the Babylonian court name for Zerubbabel because uh, there's this, uh, he, he kind of drops off, he's, then he's mentioned again, and you think, well, well who, who is this guy, this prince of Judah? who receives all these things and then seems to disappear, well, seems to be his Babylonian name, right? Just like Daniel was given a court name, a Babylonian name of? Very good, Belteshazzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were also the court names for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So it seems Sheshbazar, probably the court name for Zerubbabel. It makes everything... uh, go very smoothly when we understand that this governor of the royal line was this prince in Judah, who's also, by the way, on the first page of our New Testament as a progenitor of Jesus. Well, wanted to get that out of the way. The book of Ezra is about the courageous return of some exiles from Babylon, of rebuilding the temple, but especially the restoration of God's people spiritually. And then they start to waver, and then Another round of Reformation has to come. And so the book basically falls into two sections, chapters 1 through 6 about the return of the remnant under Zerubbabel, 538 B.C., uh, and uh, a project that, that did begin and begin well, it seems, but then opposition qu- quickly arose, and then there's nothing for 16 years. But then Haggai and Zechariah are sent by the Lord to stir the people up. We'll briefly be considering their messages again. (coughs) And the work was renewed, and it came to completion in 515 or so B.C. Then there's a break. Uh, It's not listed as a break, but there is a break in time between chapters 6 and 7, about a 58-year gap, where the events of the book of Esther, by the way, took place also. And uh, then beginning in chapter 7... some 81 years or so after the first return, Ezra the priest (coughs) leads another small group to return to the land 
but brings spiritual renewal to the people who greatly needed it, who were already becoming again like the people of the land, who barely made it a generation and were already falling back. Well, this author, Ezra, this man who comes in the second part of the book, a great type of Christ in many ways, as we'll see, this man believed in the great transforming power of God's word. Chapter 7 tells us that Ezra was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it himself and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Some of you are navigators. You're like, I think I know that verse exactly. And then in chapter 8, we find that under Ezra's leadership, he trained a whole bunch of people to follow him. And then in front of all the people, the well-trained scribes read from the book and the law of the Lord and then translate to give the sense so they can understand the reading. And the book tells us about how the word of God The Word of God gave the people new courage and godliness, and they persevered and did a great work in a hard time. covers basically two generations of that in a pretty short compass, but it tells future generations, look, this is a time for courage. Recognizing all that is against you, recognizing the decline of the cause of God in the world. Oh no, my first point to you this evening after this long introduction is it's a time for courage. It's a time for courage. The chapter begins with this glorious news that we just sang about. The exile is over. People of God, return home and build a house to your God. By the way, an inscription detailing this very policy has been discovered called the Cyrus Cylinder, although it has a few spots that are too damaged to read. Uh, I give you a portion of it literally, quote, I returned to these sacred cities, and there's some blank, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, and the images which used to live therein and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. May all the gods whom I resettled in their cities ask daily uh, for me, and so forth. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Verse 1 reminds us that no, no matter what Cyrus intended, this was the will and purpose of the Lord. They were free to return. Uh, no doubt some, some heard this word with just tremendous joy. They, they, they remembered Zion, Psalm 137. Well, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Uh, they exalted Jerusalem above their chief joy. And when they heard this glorious news that God was calling them back through his anointed Cyrus, as Isaiah puts it, to rebuild the temple. They were like men who dreamed. Sign me up. Their mouths were filled with laughter and their tongues with joyful shouting. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Well, no doubt that was true, but it was going to be nevertheless a struggle even for them. Um, They they had lived now for more than a generation in Babylon. Um, The book of Esther again tells us that they, they, they had lives there. Many of them had been born in captivity there, and Babylon was all that they knew. Oh, they heard stories about the old-timers, about the, glo- the, the glories of the old days of Zion and the beauty of the temple. <clears throat> well, 
Those glory days were long gone. Jerusalem, as I mentioned, was for almost completely destroyed. No one lived there. Going back to Jerusalem meant saying goodbye to family and friends, perhaps forever, and venturing across some 800 or more miles of terrain to a land that had been completely decimated by war. There, there were no cities. There were no empty homes waiting for them. There was no Motel 6 with the light on. There were some piles of rubble. And when they got there, they realized, and, and, and as well, they were hostile people who had moved in to their land. It was a time for courage. They were going to need it. What should they do? Should they stay? Should they go? What was it that made the difference for them? Uh, my second and final point to you, though I'll draw this out just a little more, we should follow those good desires that God has placed in our hearts. We should follow those good desires that God has placed in our hearts. I call your attention to what made the difference in verse 5. All those whose spirits God had moved, or some of you had uh, their hearts, arose to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those whose spirits God had moved. You know that many evangelical Christians today will say that the Lord told them to do this or that, and that they somehow received some special word for the Lord, or some indication somehow for God's will for some particular thing, some decision in their lives, some, some decision to go here or go there, and, and we are rightly skeptical about so many of those claims. Though I, I will also point out in the past that in, uh, so many that went before us, including in our Reformed Church, had very similar experiences. Um, for example, you remember John Knox's life story when he was a galley slave on a rowing in a French ship that he found himself off the Scottish coast, opposite St. Andrews, the very place that he had first preached the gospel of Christ. And he felt then a very, very strong impression that God was going to deliver him out of his slavery and give him again to preach in the Kirk in St. Andrews. And so it happened. Well, our forefathers, I think, uh, who experienced this were also far more ready to acknowledge that they had often got these impressions completely wrong than people today. Another story then, uh, Andrew Bonner, that Scottish pastor of the previous century, uh, had a very strong, over 100 years ago now, uh, of the 19th century, had a very strong impression, a very strong impression in the early part of his ministry that he was to have a short life. Well, it it turned out that he outlived almost uh, all of his peers from seminary days, and uh, that included both his brother and, of course, Robert Murray McShane. So, you know, uh, sometimes we think, oh, man, this is what the Lord is saying to us. We're just totally, totally wrong. Uh, We're we're not told to uh, seek the will of the Lord that way. Um, One one more uh, illustration. Edith Schaefer tells in her book, The Tapestry, of what happened when Francis Schaefer left home for college. Maybe some of you know this story. He was the first one in his family to do so. His parents were against the idea. He was going to a Christian college, our own Hampton, Sydney, probably in better shape back in the 1930s. Um, That morning, though, he had gone upstairs to say goodbye to his father, and his father had once again very strongly expressed with young Francis's determination to leave home and to go to study in college. Well, uh, Francis had become a Christian, as you know, and he told his dad to wait as he went downstairs to another room to pray. 
And there as he prayed, he said, Lord, I, th- I, th- I think I'm doing the right thing, but I, I-, I need to be sure. My-, my dad just has strongly expressed his displeasure. Lord, you know, if I'm doing the right thing, may this coin come up heads. <laughs> and sure enough, it did. And he said, now, oh, Lord, please do not be angry. But I need to be sure that I am doing the right thing. I am going against the wishes of my dear father. If this is the right thing to do, let it come up tails. And sure enough, it did. Lord, please have mercy on your servant. Do not be angry one more time. I need to be sure if this is what I ought to do. May it be heads again. Heads it was. So he went off and hugged his dad and told him that he had to go. And so he did. Was he right to take assurance from three coin flips? Absolutely not. Now, if he'd asked God for a miracle and uh, Gideon's fleece uh, happened, now that would be a completely different situation. A miracle, it's from the Lord, people. You better do it. Okay, but the fact of the matter is the Bible uses the term and the concept of the will of God in two ways, and only two. The will of God is used in the Bible to describe God's commandment. This is the will of God for you that you, you should be holy, your sanctification. Whoever does the will of God, said Jesus, is my brother and sister and mother. Uh, secondly, it's also used for God's decree, for his uh, counsel, the purposes that he brings to pass in the world. Not a sparrow falls from the tree apart from the will of your Father in heaven. Paul, an apostle, by the will of God. He brings all things to pass according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Um, sometimes Christians today mistakenly use the will of God in a third way. What is the will of God for me in some uh, particular decision? Does God want me to go this way or that way? How can I know God's will? The, the Bible doesn't use it that way, and I've explained all this before, this by way of review. But I would like to give some balance now and some further explanation in light of this passage as those who were ready to do this great work, did so because, as we read, God, we might say, laid it on their hearts. God stirred up their spirits to go. In reaction to the false ideas and the false views of various practices of guidance in some effort to uh, give legitimacy to some decision, we can also fall, on the other hand, into a kind of Christian living that's very similar to deism. The idea that God is a remote God and that he is, in fact, not involved in the day-to-day direction of our lives or our hearts. Well, maybe by his providence, okay, but not so personally involved in us and our decisions. This, This text Uh, gives us a different understanding. Now, we should not expect to hear voices. It didn't say that the prophet came to them or that the word of the Lord came to this people. If If you're hearing voices, please see me after service. On the other hand, we should not suppose that God is just sitting back on some celestial hillside, having given us once his word, his principles, just watching with benign disinterest now whether we will make the proper decisions or not, that there is a personal, definite interaction with God and our hearts. Now, we are even to pray for and uh, to depend upon the Lord's active presence, his persuasion, his direction of our lives. Now, here in Ezra, 
uh, let me explain, we're not told what the stirring of the Lord and uh, the, uh, the, the moving of the spirits amounted to. Just how did they know that it was time to leave and that the Lord wanted them to get up and go back to Judah? Well, perhaps it's just saying they wanted to go, so it must have been of the Lord. Or perhaps it was saying that Cyrus's proclamation to them must have been of the Lord, and it should be understood by them to direct their lives, as uh, the prophets had said. Or maybe it included some longing in their hearts, a growing sense that Babylon was not their permanent home but that it was far away? Or was it the word that Isaiah had prophesied about Cyrus, God's anointed, and the way that God had promised to use that very man in the life of his people? Well, you know, maybe it was all those things. I, I, I don't know. Those are all legitimate. But in any case, this we know, that this movement also in their hearts was from the Lord, that he wanted them to go, and they went. There was apparently no specific commandment. They took direction from their hearts or spirits in return. God directs us in serving him, not just by the various principles in his word, but even by the desires that he places in our hearts. And you think, well, there's a big area for misunderstanding there. Yes, there is, and I'll get to that in a moment. But before we just explain it away, let me remind you of the testimony of the Word of God, as many people in the Word of God have explained this in a variety of ways, and many people throughout the history of the church have called this different things, the leadings or the promptings of His Spirit, or so forth, in the same, uh, 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 Ezra and Nehemiah, the same book here originally, Ezra uh, writing both here, anyway, uh, we read in uh, Nehemiah, both chapter 1 and chapter 2, the same thing, that Nehemiah was going to do what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. What my God had put in my heart to do from Jerusalem. Nehemiah's call from God to serve him came not just only from the principles and the word of God that he read, he recognized, as these are his words, that it came from the desires God had placed in his heart. God was working in there. Later in chapter 7, Ezra thanks God who put such a thing as this into the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Paul writes, here's a trustworthy saying, if a man sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a good work. In the same way when Paul wants someone to go and minister to the church in Corinth, Paul's companion, Titus, that elder from Jerusalem, he eagerly volunteered, I want to go. And Paul says, I thank God who put it into the heart of Titus, the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he's coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. My point again that I'm making to you is not that we should seek to follow prompting this or prompting that necessarily, but we must be open to follow those good desires that God has placed in our hearts. And I can multiply examples. There is a large testimony of this in the Bible. You see what I mean? God puts in your heart something that you desire to fulfill. Not only was Titus gifted for service in general, not only did he know the Word of God, but he was eager to go and assist the Corinthians. And he said, you know, the Lord has laid this on my heart. I want to go to Corinth with much enthusiasm. What, what do you have in your heart? Or, or do you need us to ask God to have a burning desire to do some good thing for him? You say, Lord, I, 
I know these principles, I know the opportunities, I, I really feel very little as a matter of fact, but I know that whenever you call God's people to do great things, you, you lay it on their heart, you give them a burden, a desire, a burning to f- serve you in some way. I want that which you can give. And I think that's a prayer that he is likely to answer because that is the kind of calling he often gives to his saints. Here in Ezra 1, God's people certainly have a word-informed desire for God's glory, but they had a burning passion that they knew was of him. And they recognized that God has moved their spirits to do this good thing. Well, I, I, I do want to say now for the rest of my time, that there are some very clear dangers in this matter of desire. Um, The Word of God is very clear. It can be read by all. If one passage isn't clear, you can read another passage in light of it here, right? Comparing Scripture with Scripture. But obviously, the true burden of your heart is something that's known by you, and that is up and down and very subjective. So, I'll mention four dangers of this desire, okay? You know, we need to be looking and seeking these desires from God to do great things for him, recognizing these four dangers. Number one, our desires are very fickle. Our desires are very fickle. They're up and down. Uh, we, we, we find in, in just a few chapters, these very people that the Lord gave a desire to do this good work. They put it on their hearts, right? Laid it on their spirits. Uh, they're squabbling, they're discouraged, and eventually they're going to give up work for 16 years thinking that everything's against them, right? Okay, so it is. Our desires are up and down. Often time will tell whether we're going to be able to see things uh, through in any particular service. The usual situation is that someone starts out in some service or ministry because they had a desire, but it turns out not to be a long desire. Maybe the person was not realistic about what it would mean to serve. Um, my uh, old, old preacher in Charlotte who just passed away, I, I've told you before, he says, you know, everyone wants to be a servant until you're treated like a servant, right? So it's one thing to say, oh, Lord, I'm going to be a servant for you. And then you realize, hmm, this is going to be harder than I thought. People often have unrealistic expectations. They, they, they realize that their desire was to do something that was not, in fact, a, a, a real task. Uh, I mentioned the median length of men in ministry, less than four years. That's just a rumor, by the way. Don't quote me. I've never seen a study, but it does ring true. I mean, we need to desire things from the Lord. That's clear. But we need to recognize that desires are very fickle, that we must have, as the people had, an objective reason to serve the Lord in this way that will bring us through our various discouragements. Second, our gifts must back up our desires. Our gifts must back up our desires. I mean, Cyrus recognizes in his decree not everybody can go. Not everybody could go, right? If we simply can't do what we might desire to do, we need to realign our desires with reality. We're not to desire to be an apple tree if God has made us to bear bananas. We need to be faithful with the gifts God has given what, what, that indicates what we are truly God to do, to, to, to do for God. When I was a new Christian, I had a great desire to serve him in gospel ministry, in the ministry of the Word. The Word of God had made a powerful impact upon my life and mind and heart. And I 
began to pray that I might serve him in some way and began to study. I, I tried teaching a uh, Bible study. Uh, I tried uh, something at a local church. Uh, it became readily apparent to me and everyone else that my gifts lay elsewhere. So I laid off praying. I gave up doing that. My prayers uh, were uh, redirected. And I tried, I, 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 and I said, God, I'm not going to try to ask you to be faithful with something that you haven't given me. I, I want to ask you to be, help me to be faithful with what you have given me, right? But those prayers were eventually answered, I think, at least in some measure, as I earnestly did desire the greater gifts. And as the Lord began, uh, it seems to change my very personality, so that here I am standing before you now, which I was terrified and many other issues before, uh, the Lord has, has redirected here uh, because the gift needs to back up the desire. That's why I'm giving you this illustration. This is not only wise, but biblical. And let those first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless, Paul says, right? We need to be realistic and to take some, some trial of our gifts and to recognize that gifts imply a calling, and calling needs the gifts. And we'll have a good ambition and a true ambition, a true desire, when we know that it actually matches what God has blessed us with. But let me present, present the challenge in the opposite way now. Our desires must follow our gifts. Our desires must follow our gifts. God does not give gifts to his people. God has not gifted you in order that you might bury that gift. God has not given gifts that he doesn't expect people to use. It's written, if a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's uh, government, let him govern di diligently and so forth. Uh, showing mercy, do it cheerfully. Don't lack in zeal. But keep your fervor serving the Lord. People ought not to leave undone the things that they ought to have done. Well, how do I know? Because God has gifted you this way. So, really briefly to illustrate, uh, Charles Spurgeon in uh, his pastor's college said, look, man, if you can do anything else in life, you should do it. Um, I wondered about that for a long time. I thought, well, I, of course I could do something else. I've been doing something else for 10 years here in the IT world, right? What, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Greatly helped me when I read then a paper by Robert Dabney, What is a Call to the Ministry, um, writing at the same time in Virginia, but in a very different situation where Virginia was not even able to uh, fill its own pulpits. It was, it was uh, sh desperately short of ministers. Uh, Dabney says, look, some of you have gifts that would serve the Lord in ministry. And yet, for whatever reason, you have chosen not to exercise them, to maybe to employ them in very other ways. In other ways. You need to repent. <laughs> if you can serve the Lord in the gospel ministry and you don't do it, repent. You're in sin. Flee to the mountains lest you be consumed. Well, I thought, this is very interesting. How am I going to reconcile these things together? And I realized that they did meet very nicely because the gifts and the calling are two sides of the same thing. If you can take those gifts and, and not use them, Spurgeon says, then you shouldn't use them. But Dabney says, what is this but backsliding? 
you need to get your heart into a right place. Do what God has called you to do. You've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And this is an even more common error than the last one. Some people have a desire, but no ability or opportunity or gifts. Many people have the opportunity and ability, but they lack the desire. Well, if that's you, you need to pray that the Lord would raise up your spirit. Uh, Move your spirit, as he did these people of old. Lay upon your heart a desire to devote yourself to the service of the Lord with all that he has given you, seeking first the kingdom of God, and then you will be able to fulfill your calling. Finally, don't despise the work of God's Spirit in our hearts. Don't despise the work of God's Spirit in our hearts. We know from the Bible, as well as I think from church history, that people have different spiritual experiences. God works in different ways, very different ways sometimes. Some people end up serving God with great and constant desires, and they say, this is the way to do it. Uh, Other people muddle through. They are they are up and down, right? We've got John Bunyan now for Sunday school. You know how up and down he was, especially at the beginning. Man, beloved, great and fruitful saints of both sorts could be mentioned. No reason given for this variation in the Spirit's work. Why does, why does one man have such constant desires and he stirs up the Spirit in this way? The other person, so up and down, a David Brainerd, up one day, down the next. The Lord knows what we need. No reason can be given except that the counsel of God has so appointed it for us. People who know more of the Spirit's leadings, more of the burdens of their hearts, shouldn't consider others unspiritual because they are perplexed. Nor should those who seem to know much less of the Spirit's leadings always conclude that others are self-deceived because they say things like Nehemiah says, God has laid this on my heart, or Paul, or so forth. Yes, some people are unspiritual or unscriptural. Yes, some people are even self-deceived. But understand that God does work in a variety of ways, and let no man judge you in these matters, right? Seek the direction of the Lord in His Word, and, as I said, from that desire that He gives you. But recognize that it may not happen to you just like it happened to somebody else. Don't read the biography of some great saint and say, God, that's what I want. And if they don't give me that, well, I don't know what to do, right? Well, somebody will say, I knew that God called me this way. Good for them. Don't let them put that on you, right? God uh, deals with men differently as he pleases and to each one uh, and to his master, each man stands or falls. So my last warning, don't despise the work of God's Spirit in our hearts. I hope that gives you some balance in this matter about a burning desire that we ought to have, for God is not a deistic God, but he is deeply involved in our decisions about how to work and what to do for him and his glory, recognizing those difficulties. Well, in conclusion, uh, these people in far-off Babylon not having a call from heaven, not being knocked to the ground, right? It's like Paul. The people of this chapter were just like the rest of us, and they were entirely dependent upon following God's providence and reading God's word and figuring out what was their desire of their hearts. They, they, they had an open door to start, but, you know, a lot of people that wait for open doors don't realize that most, thing in, most things in ministry end up being breaking down doors. 
And even though there was an open door here in the beginning for them to go, there's closing, 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 closing doors in the next chapters ahead. And they're going to have to learn how to negotiate that. There aren't many things worth doing that are as easy as merely walking through an open door, people. You want to do something great for the Lord, you're going to have to beat down some doors, Ezra tells you how. The fact is, a great work is often extremely trying. We are not among that remnant of Jews seeking to restore the glory and worship of God in Zion. But we are, Peter says, living stones and being built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this book helps us fulfill that word. Ezra written for our instruction that we might have the courage and the desire to follow the real Redeemer, not just Zerubbabel, his great-great-grandfather, the real Redeemer. And Paul refers to us as fellow workers for the kingdom. So we must see what this little book has to teach us about following our Redeemer and restoring the fallen glory of God in his temple. Apathy, sluggishness, make God's people deaf to such a call for service. Impenitent and unconsecrated people seem to live out of earshot of such a call. Meanwhile, there are far more needs and opportunities in the church and in the world than anyone can possibly begin to meet. And so it is, I pray that you would study this book with me and join together following the Lord to do a great work for his name. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that each one of you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. Well, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this uh, little book that uh, tells us about great things. We pray that you would open it up to us in new ways. We have similar uh, thoughts about our own state and situation. We desire to see the glory of the Lord again flourish and to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Who is among us of all your people? May God be with us even as you were with them. And may you stir up the hearts of us, your people, in order that we might desire.